for us. I feel like that's really awesome. Thank you guys for your love and support always. And um, we actually noticed a few of you guys have been getting our exclusive stickers in the mail. Yeah. So I think it's set up right now. So there's a $3 tier. If you do that three months in a row, you get an exclusive sticker. So something a little cool. Yeah, and hopefully we can add a little bit more to that. We're going to focus on our um, Patreon a little bit more in the next few weeks. So, And we have um, just a little shout out for those of you who left us a five-star review. We really appreciate the support for those of you who took the time to show us some love. Lately, we've been getting eaten alive a little, so a little bit. Um, it really helps people like you find our show. And uh, we just wouldn't... It gives us a pat on the back. Yeah, it gives us, you know, it makes us feel good, too. It warms our little hearts, especially when we get uh, a few one-star reviews, and then those kind of hurt a little. They hurt a lot more than they probably should. Hmm, sad. All right, guys, so let's jump into this week's episode. In 1989, there were about 20,000 murders, but only 12,000 were solved. That's only a 60% success rate. And that number hasn't changed much in the last 30 years. You would think that with technology like DNA analysis and surveillance in more places, we'd be doing better. And of those unsolved crimes, few are solved years later. One of those 8,000 unsolved cases in 1989 was the disappearance of Jacob Wetterling. Unlike so many others, this cold case did get a resolution, but it wasn't until 27 years later as a warning, this case references sexual abuse of children. Jerry and Patty Wetterling were the proud parents of four children, Amy, Jacob, Trevor, and Carmen. Though she was originally from Nebraska, Patty had grown up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and was raising her children in St. Joseph, Minnesota, a small town located near St. Cloud. Made up of about 6,000 people, St. Joseph, or St. Joe as the locals called it, seemed like a safe place to raise a family. And in 1989, Patty never thought twice about letting her kids play out in the front yard or ride their bikes around town. Jacob was Patty's second eldest child born on February 17, 1978. Jacob was a spirited boy who loved sports, his family, and having fun. He would fish with his dad, loved the Raiders, and named his dog after his favorite running back, Marcus Allen. Full of energy at 11 years old, he played soccer, hockey, baseball, and football. In 1989, the Wetterling family was full of joy. Patty and Jerry were happy in their jobs. Their eldest daughter, Amy, was 13 and loving school. Their youngest, Carmen, was excited to learn and grow. And Jacob, 11, and Trevor, just a year younger at 10, were inseparable, confident, and the most happy-go-lucky kids you can meet. All of that changed on October 22nd, 1989. October 22nd, 1989 was a chilly fall day, unlike any other day for the Wetterling family. But that night, Patty and Jerry were heading out to Clearwater, a town about 20 miles from St. Joe, to attend a party. Patty had the daughter of a neighbor come over to watch her four kids while they went out. But always looking for something fun to do, a bit before 8.30 p.m., Trevor and Jacob, along with Jacob's best friend, Aaron Larson, called their parents at their party to see if they could take their bikes over to the Tom Thumb convenience store and rent a video. Given that this was something that they did often, 
and that the Tom Thumb was less than a mile and a half away. Patty and Jerry agreed, and the boys headed out on their bikes. After arriving, the boys looked through the aisles and decided on Naked Gun, a crime comedy starring Leslie Nielsen that had just been released earlier that year. Around 9 p.m., after checking out their movie, the boys hopped back on their bikes to take the same familiar route back to Trevor and Jacob's house. But when they were only a few blocks away from Jacob's house, a man walked out from a driveway and ordered them to stop. The man was wearing a stocking cap mask and holding a revolver in his hand. The boys couldn't see a single car nearby. The armed gunman yelled at the boys to throw their bikes into a nearby ditch and lay on the ground. Afraid, they did. Trying to reason with the man, they offered him the tape that they had just rented, which the masked man hid out of their hand. They shone their single flashlight in his direction, but he aggressively demanded them to stop and they listened. One by one, he asked each boy their name and how old they were. Jacob and Aaron were 11 years old, both in the 6th grade. Trevor was 10, only in the 5th grade. After hearing their ages, the man told Trevor to run into the woods and not look back. He told them that if he turned around and looked back, that he would be shot. Young and terrified, Trevor obeyed. The man turned back to Aaron and Jacob and looked at them, deciding between them. After a moment, he instructed Aaron to run into the woods and not look back, just like Trevor. After running about 50 to 75 yards, Aaron and Trevor finally turned their back around to see if Jacob was with them. He was nowhere in sight, and panicked and terrified, the remaining boys made their way back to the Wetterling's home to let them know what had happened and that Jacob was no longer with them. With Patty and Jerry away at their party, the young babysitter ran next door to tell her father what Trevor and Aaron had shared. Her father, Merlin Jerzak, called the Wetterlings to share what had happened, and they promptly called 911. In the dispatch, he reports everything he can, frequently checking in with Aaron and Trevor to get the details. He tells the police dispatch operator that Jacob was wearing a red hockey jacket that had the words police department and his name printed on it in white letters. While on the phone with 911, Trevor had managed to calm down a bit for Merlin to pass the phone over to him to describe what had happened firsthand. Trevor described the man as large, wearing a nylon black mask with a deep voice that sounded like he had a cold. By 9.38, the first deputy of the Stearns County Sheriff's Office arrived at the house to learn more about what had happened. And then less than a half an hour later, a full search began of the surrounding area to find the 11-year-old boy, Jacob Wetterling. From 10 at night until 3 in the morning on October 22, 1989, police officers, canine dogs, and helicopters searched through the wooded area near where the boys had last seen Jacob and retraced their route to the Tom Thumb. Over the next two days, the search expanded to include the FBI and a profiler who labeled Jacob's abductor as likely a white loner with a physical deformity who committed to a similar crime in the past. 
their search of the area turned up tire tracks and shoe prints, which they hoped could lead them towards a primary suspect. But slowly, days passed with little news about Jacob. The Stern County Sheriff speculated that Jacob was already dead, and the investigators were certain that his kidnapping was done by a sexual offender. By October 27th, the national news was reporting on Jacob's disappearance. A reward of $100,000 was being offered from business leaders in and around the St. Paul area, and the National Guard had been activated to help search a 700-square-mile area around the Wetterling's home. With national attention, thousands of tips came in, but there was nothing concrete enough to bring Jacob home. From the investigation, police learned that a man was seen lurking around near the Tom Thumb that the boys had gone into on the night that Jacob was taken. Using eyewitness descriptions, they compiled a sketch of this man to share with the public. A week later, they released two more sketches of possible men who could have been involved with Jacob's case. One of the men who was seen talking about the abduction in the Tom Thumb and another who was thought to be involved with an abduction of a boy in New Brighton, a suburb near Minneapolis. But even when these sketches were compiled, and a new single description of Jacob's possible capture was released at the end of November of 1989, nothing new came out. With Jacob having been gone for over a month, the FBI and Stern County Sheriff's Department's dedication to the case began to dwindle. Hi, this is Daniel Roo of the Real GM Radio Podcast. It's a Texas showdown in the postseason, and BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering information with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. BetOnline has real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. We're serious up betting on football. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action at BetOnline, where the game starts. Though they had found little information that could help them locate Jacob, investigators were considering that Jacob's kidnapping was connected to a sexual assault that had occurred nine months prior. Jared Sherrill, who was six days away from turning 13, was walking home from ice skating on January 13, 1989, when a car pulled up next to him and the driver pointed a gun at Jared, demanding him to get inside. The driver told Jared not to look back or he would be shot. The man drove the car down a dark gravel path and sexually assaulted Jared in the backseat. After the attack, Jared was let out of the car free to go. Jared was assaulted in Cold Spring, a town less than 10 miles from where Jacob was kidnapped. Besides the close proximity to Jacob's abduction, Jared described his attacker to what Trevor and Aaron reported, a larger man with a raspy voice who gave the same command while brandishing a gun. The main difference was that Jared's attacker wasn't wearing a mask. Jared, only 13 years old, tried his best to recount as many details of his assault to the police in order to help them find Jacob. 
He provided his own sketch of the man and sat through countless interviews with police. But as he was only 13 and suffering deeply from his own trauma, the demand from the investigators for answers he couldn't provide eventually grew to be too much, and the Cheryl family moved to a farm near Painesville, Minnesota to find some peace. As weeks turned into months, police grew no closer to finding Jacob Wetterling, only finding more cases of sexual assault of young boys by an adult male in nearby towns. With the growing network of cases, the Stearns County Sheriff's Office finally found a possible suspect, Danny Henrick. Danny was born in 1963 and had spent his whole life in Painesville with his parents and two brothers. He had dropped out of high school, had a record of drunk driving and burglaries, and had spent time in the early 1980s in the Minnesota National Guard before being honorably discharged in the 1990s. What led investigators to Danny Henrik isn't entirely clear, but in January of 1990, he was interviewed multiple times, DNA samples were gathered, and the tires on his car were analyzed. In all interviews, Danny denied knowing anything about what happened to Jacob or being responsible for Jared Sherrill's attack. Over the course of the month, investigators continued to look for evidence connecting Danny to the crimes by searching his home, placing him in a lineup, and having Jared get back into the very car that they believed he was attacked in only a year earlier. By February of 1990, though the task force dedicating to finding Jacob was reducing their efforts, Danny Heinrich was arrested for Jared's assault after a fiber from Jared's clothing was believed to match a fiber from the car that Danny owned. But after less than a day, all of the charges against Danny Heinrich were dropped. He was a free man. Even though it was quickly becoming years since the day Jacob was taken, the Wetterling family remained hopeful that their son would return home safe. They refused to change their home phone number in case Jacob would call and had no intentions of ever moving in case he somehow found his way back. Over the years, there was much turnover in the Stearns County Sheriff's Department, which continued to detract from the efforts to find Jacob. The Wetterling family channeled their pain into activism, establishing the Jacob Wetterling Foundation, an organization dedicating to ending child abuse of all forms, and campaigned to get the Jacob Wetterling Crimes Against Children and Sexually Violent Offender Registration Act and Child Safety Act passed. This law, once passed, established that those convicted of a sexually violent felony against a minor had to register with the police for 10 years after release from prison, parole, or probation. By 2004, it had been 15 years since Jacob Wetterling was abducted in front of his brother and best friend from St. Joe, Minnesota. With new administration in the police department, those still working on Jacob's case found a new primary suspect, Dan Razier, a neighbor to the Wetterlings, whose house was right near where Jacob was abducted. Dan was a band and music teacher in his mid-30s at the time of Jacob's disappearance, who lived a quiet life on a farm in St. Joe. Dan had spent his whole life living on that farm, having inherited from his parents after returning from school. He worked in the Rokori School District for years and was well-liked. Despite living near each other for years, the Razier and Wetterling families didn't know each other well. 
On October 22, 1989, Dan was home alone for the night. He had noticed two cars making U-turns in his driveway that day, which wasn't quite unusual considering many thought that the gravel path was a road, not a dead end at his house. When he noticed officers searching near his property the next morning and learned about Jacob's abduction, he only talked to them briefly before going back inside and staying out of their way. It was his disinterest behavior and lack of involvement, in addition to the crime occurring right outside his home, that made many suspect that Dan Razier knew more than he was letting on. To clear his name in the initial days of the investigation, Dan had agreed to a lie detector test and was hypnotized. When that turned up nothing, police seemed to stop considering him a suspect. But in 2004, an anonymous confession came in that a man had driven his car through the crime scene right after Jacob was taken. Police assumed that the man who had taken Jacob was on foot and that given Dan's proximity to the abduction, they believed he was guilty. Dan's life began to get turned upside down as police had him sit through intense questioning and searched through his family's farm multiple times, digging up land and taking anything they thought could be connected to Jacob. Despite not finding any evidence connecting Dan Razier to Jacob, they declared him a person of interest in 2010. Because of this, Dan, who denied any involvement, lost work, was harassed throughout town, and saw his family's home turned upside down. In July of 2015, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension made a startling find from the wrist of a sweatshirt that Jared Sherrill had worn during the attack over 25 years earlier. The DNA samples found matched the DNA of Danny James Heinrich, the first suspect that the police had considered in Jacob's kidnapping all of those years ago, and the man they briefly had in custody 25 years ago from Jared's attack. By the end of July 2015, police had obtained a warrant to search through Danny's house again. In looking for evidence to connect him to Jacob and Jared's abductions, they found 19 three-ring binders that contained child pornography, as well as many tapes of secretly recorded children in the neighborhood, videos of them delivering newspapers, riding bikes at playgrounds, or playing sports at parks. Though the statute of limitations has expired to charge Danny Heinrich to Jacob's kidnapping, the amount of child pornography found in his possession was enough for him to be arrested. In order to lessen the sentence so that he would be only charged with the pornography, Danny Heinrich admitted to the truth. He was the man who had abducted Jacob in October of 1989, and he told investigators that he had killed Jacob Wetterling only a few hours after kidnapping him that night. At the end of August in 2016, 27 years after Jacob's abduction, Danny Heinrich brought police to the place where he had buried Jacob Wetterling, a spot on a farm about 30 miles away from St. Joseph, but only a short distance from where Danny had lived in Painesville. In court on September 6th, Danny Heinrich recounted the horrible night that changed the course of so many lives. On October 22nd, 1989, he had been driving down the road when he noticed Jacob, Trevor, and Aaron pass by on their bikes. Setting his sights on them, he pulled in Dan Razier's driveway to turn around and wait for them to come back on their way home. 
When they finally did about 20 minutes later, Danny put on a mask, got out of his car, grabbed his gun, and confronted them. This part we know from Trevor and Aaron's accounts. After Trevor and Aaron had run away, Danny handcuffed Jacob with his arms behind his back and put him in the front seat of the car that was parked in Razier's driveway. Danny shared that in the car, Jacob was asking him, what did I do wrong? Danny then drove a frightened Jacob out of St. Joe, listening on a Regency 50 channel police scanner to see if he had been reported yet. Danny instructed Jacob to duck down and lean forward in the seat to avoid any passing cars from noticing him until they were outside of town. He took Jacob to Sewage Pond Road in Painesville, where he had parked his car next to a field and grove of trees. Danny got Jacob out of the car, unhandcuffed him, and demanded that he get undressed. For about a half hour, Danny Heinrich sexually assaulted Jacob. Jacob told Danny that he was cold, and Danny instructed him to get dressed again and get back into the car. While in the car, Jacob asked Danny to take him home, but Danny denied him, saying that he lived in a town or so away and that he couldn't take him all the way there. Jacob, being young, traumatized, and terrified, started to cry. Danny Heinrich then noticed patrol cars in the area and took the revolver out of his pocket. All of this time, it had been unloaded, but now Danny loaded it with two rounds. He told Jacob that he had to go to the bathroom and that Jacob needed to turn around. When Jacob obeyed, Danny lifted the gun to Jacob's head and fired around, not looking at the boy as he shot him. When Danny finally looked, he saw that Jacob was still standing, so he shot him again. And this time, Jacob fell to the ground dead. Danny Heinrich then told the court that after confirming that Jacob was dead, he left his body there and went back to his home at the Plaza Apartments in Painesville. He remained there for a couple of hours before coming back to the area where he had killed Jacob. He dragged him about 100 yards off the road. Danny then went over to the construction company next door and took a bobcat excavator to dig up a grave. At this point, it was after midnight. He was finished digging. He put Jacob's body in the grave, covered it up with dirt, and returned the bobcat. He came back one last time to cover the grave with grass and brush. In doing this, he noticed that Jacob's shoes had come off while he was being buried. Danny took these shoes with him and threw them in the ravine that was on his way home. For a year, Danny Heinrich lived in secret with what he had done to Jacob, despite an endless search and the Wetterlings' pleas for answers. After a year or so, he went back to the spot where he had buried Jacob and found that the body had started to become uncovered. He used a bag to gather as much of Danny's body, bones, and clothes that remained, including the red jacket that Jacob was last seen wearing. Danny then took Jacob's remains across the highway to a rural farm in Painesville. Using a trenching tool, he dug a hole about two feet deep and put Jacob Wetterling's remains in it, covering them up with the red jacket. He left Jacob there and told no one what he had done for 27 years. In his confession, Danny Heinrich also admitted that he was responsible for assaulting Jared Sherrill. In confessing, Danny Heinrich was sentenced to the maximum amount of time possible, 20 years, for the possession of child pornography. Though the sentencing was not officially for Jacob's death and Jared's assault, the Wetterling and Sherrill families still see this as justice. 
given how long it has been since the attacks, they had no other means to see him sentenced. At least with this, the Wetterlings were given some closure and finally knew the truth about where their little boy had gone. The actions of Danny Heinrich that night changed the trajectory for many. Dan Razier, in being falsely accused and aggressively targeted by police, is still trying to rebuild his life after Danny's confession. Amy and Carmen lost their brother that night and struggled to move on. Trevor and Aaron, even now in their 40s, find it difficult to accept that they are blameless in what happened to Jacob, only being young boys afraid for their lives at the time. Patty and Jerry have dedicated their lives to preventing such abuse from happening to any child in America. And Jacob Wetterling, at only 11 years old, was taken from the world in his future by a monster who got away with it for far too long. This completes this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect. Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plot or Chris Hart. BetOnline is your number one source for all your baseball wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. BetOnline has everything you need to stay up to speed on each league championship series all the way through the World Series. And don't forget, BetOnline is where you get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals for the NFL and college football right at your fingertips. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on all the action. BetOnline, where the game starts.